0: O God, whose blessed Son came into the world, that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life, grant that, having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom, where he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That is the collect, or the prayer, appointed for today, November the 6th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I want to give a little bit of a heads up on what that first prayer is. It occurs to me that I don't say it enough about that. So in the, um, in the Anglican world, as with Lutherans and, uh, and Roman Catholics, uh, we have a prayer book Right, so um, they're in in that prayer book can, are contained the sort of the articles of religion, which are the thirty nine articles that the early Anglican Church decided that that it felt like it needed to spell out most clearly about its beliefs, in order to say that it that it lines up with the history and the tradition of the church. So that that, that is an Anglican statement of belief is, is known as the thirty nine articles of religion. They're also in their forms for. Uh, morning prayer as a corporate uh, celebration of worship, also an evening prayer. There are also forms for family prayer, but also the, the Sunday worship services are in there, and there's you have varieties and options in all those things. Well, in addition to, to those forms, in addition to that, there, there are certain things that are appointed for each week. So one of those is a specific prayer for each week that sort of Pulls together the themes of the lessons and, and um, pulls it all together in, in a succinct form. That prayer would be read early in the service prior to the reading of the lessons, for instance. And so it would kind of put you in mind to, to be reading the lessons or hearing the lessons read with the, that prayer and those ideas in mind. In addition, the the lessons that are appointed for each Sunday um, are in there. It's a three-year cycle of readings for Sundays. There's also a two-year cycle of readings daily um in addition to that there is the Psalter which is all the psalms and those are broken up such that you would read the psalms if you read them according to the way the prayer book lines up uh, you would read in the morning and in the evening you would read some of the psalms and so at the, you would you would read all the psalms then every single month of the year so the, the uh, Anglican tradition is incredibly scriptural it, it uses more of the bible than probably any uh, church you'll ever go to in your life, and so that's the reason that I use it, and, and it, it, it prevents me from just choosing the things that I prefer is the reason that I use the the lectionary that I do, just so you'll know. So anyway, so that prayer is appointed for a specific Sunday, right? So it, it's, it's the whatever it is, let's see, <laughs> it is proper 27, which means that it's 27 weeks after um, Pentecost, well, not really, because the week after Pentecost is a specific, um, it's its Trinity Sunday, so it's 27 weeks after that, and and then we will soon be in Lessons for Advent. That'll be coming up soon. So anyway, that that's the explanation for what that prayer of the day is. It's not something John made up. It's something that's been in an Anglican prayer book for a very long time. In some cases, it could have been in a prayer book since, what, 1546, I think it is, the first one? Um so anyway, that, that's what, where that prayer comes from. At any rate, we've had a good week. We've gotten together with friends multiple times this week, uh, had dinner with people one, one night, lunch the next day, and, and then dinner the following day with a group of people. So it's been really nice. We've been able to spend a lot of time with prayer. We have been able to spend kind of minimal time in the woods this week, and which is, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> I would prefer to be out more, but whatever. So anyway, we're looking forward to some things coming up. Pelham, our son uh, who lives in Seattle, he and his wife are going to be in town for about uh, eight days starting next week. Uh, we'll see them some of that time. They have things that they have to get done, uh, and I'm not going to get into all that. It's just it, it's, it, it has to do with her father's estate. They've got a lot of things that need to be done from that. He died three years ago. Um, also, we're going out there the week of Thanksgiving, so I'm looking forward to seeing them and being together with them while we're there. Um, and then we're going to come home, be home about 10 days, and then we're going to go to the beach in Polly's Island and spend Uh, about five days, I think, with um, some friends that we've known for a very long time uh, who have a beach house down there. And it happens that they're going down there then, and and they invited us to come and see them. And they also lost a son about 15 years ago. He was 24 years old. I was blessed to preach at his funeral. Um, And so we have certain kinds of things in common, and and we have uh, a lot of history. With one another, so looking forward to, to being together with them. So it's going to be kind of a busy next several weeks, and and that's a good thing. Glad glad for that. Um, so let's get started by, by saying that that man. This is the the lessons that we have today uh, all relate to the end times. So they're all what we would what we would refer to as apocalyptic literature, uh, which means that they are they're going to say something about the end times, and and then what happens after the end times. Is, is kind of what Jesus is going to be talking about um, Paul's going to refer to it and and so how do we deal with that and, and you know I, i'll I'll fully admit that it's not been an area of fascination for me in my ministry it's never been something that's really kind of you know gripped me and held me and I've known people who are obsessed with it you know I, I was at a conference one time and the speaker was fantastic he wasn't talking about end times though um, and, and as I left, a guy just started talking to me, and he seemed like a nice guy. I knew his brother-in-law. He had been our priest in uh, Knoxville, and so I, I, I knew him, and, and I ended up getting to know his family really well. His, his uh, my, my uh, our, our rector's uh, par- in-laws came to my Bible study for many years, and I loved them dearly. And so anyway, this guy stopped me, and he wanted to talk, and so fine. And so we started chatting as I was leaving. I was still a seminarian at the time. And so it, as we were going out he said come here I, I want to show you something we go to his car and he pulls this box out and and what he had was this color coded chart that had to do with end times theology and and it was so detailed it was unbelievable and and all I wanted to do was run because it was like you have an obsession with something here and I'm 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 absolutely certain that you don't have it worked out perfectly because nobody does I think there's so much in the language that relates to apocalyptic literature that, that doesn't lend itself to easy interpretation and straightforward interpretation. Every generation has interpreted it to mean a different thing. <laughs> you know, it, it, oh, it, is the Antichrist this person? Is it Nero, which was kind of one of the early thoughts on it? Was it um, uh, who not What am I trying to say? Caligula. Was it this one? Was it that one? And then it becomes, okay, is it Hitler? Is it whoever? You know? And and so everybody interprets it in such a way that they believe they have the right interpretation. That they are living in that end time. Well, Jesus never told anybody to sort of obsess over this. In fact he was very clear. That it's not something we were intended to obsess over, and yet, well, here we are. So at any rate, so I'm going to talk about that today, but but I'm going to admit to you on the front end that it is not my particular field of study. It doesn't mean I'm ignorant or or haven't thought about it at all. It just means that that there's a lot that I just don't know and that I can't say any of this for certain. You would never hear John say, "I, I believe we are in the end times other than well, we're not in the beginning times. And we live after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, we are in the end times. But we've been in the end times for a couple thousand years now. So I can't say to you with any degree of certainty at all that, that you know, it could happen in the next month. It could, it could happen well like in the middle of this talk.
1: But I, I don't
0: think it will, but it, but it could. And so the point is we're supposed to live like it could. That, that's exactly the point of knowing that Jesus is coming again is to know that no one knows the day or the hour, therefore just live like it might be right now. So that that's kind of the point, That I, my takeaway, and kind of the reason that I really don't spend very much time thinking about it or talking about it. I'm glad that, it, that that revelation shows up in the daily lectionary because it forces me to deal with it every single year, multiple times during the year, but I don't dwell on it. So anyway, the, the first lesson is, is very straightforward and it's from Job 1923 to27. The, the context is Job is trying to make his case. He says I, he's been saying, I don't understand. This, this doesn't make any sense. It's not right. What's happened to me is not right. It shouldn't have happened. I've done everything that I could do. I, I've done everything right. I've made all the proper sacrifices. I, I've tried to, to raise my children the right way. I've tried to live the right way. And, and the, the proof of that was God's blessing on my life. And so now that I've had everything taken away from me, none of this makes any sense. There should have been one, one relationship, and there has been most of my life. And now, well, I don't understand the world around me because all this fell apart. And so my theology hasn't quite fallen apart, but, but its theology was wrong just like the theology of his friends was wrong, and that is you can do all the right things and not have the outcome you think will happen. And we're going to see that, actually, in the gospel today. But but Job's complaint is, is, I just want God to explain things to me, why this happened to me. Why have I lost everything? Why have I lost all my children? Why have I lost all my wealth? Why have I lost everything? And I just want an explanation for that. And his friends are accusing him of of some hidden sin that caused all this to happen. And Job's response is, essentially, I don't have any sin. That's the reason this shouldn't happen. They've both got the same theology at the end of the day, and that is they both believe that this is a result of sin. And Job says, but it's not. You know, my prosperity was a result of my righteousness, Therefore, this shouldn't have happened because I didn't do something. And the friends saying they didn't. So, so he's saying he he he's saying you guys are supposed to be my friends, but you come out and all you've done is accuse me. And so now, what he says is this: Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, with an iron pen and lead, that they were engraved in the rock forever. So I, my my complaint, my truth that I've expressed here, that I haven't done anything wrong. I, I, want, I wish that stuff would be around forever. I wish there was some way to capture that truth forever. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. So what he's saying is is that, that I, I want a reckoning at some point in time. And I, and I just want my argument to be put before the King, who would be God. And he says, "I know my Redeemer lives." So he knows he needs a Redeemer. And what is a Redeemer? Well, a, a kinsman Redeemer, for instance, in in the Old Testament sense, in the in the legalistic sense from the law of Moses, is is very simple. If someone kills somebody in your family, for instance, then then you, as a kinsman Redeemer, have the right and in some ways the obligation to go fix that to go kill that person but there are cities of refuge that are set up and those cities of refuge are an accidental killing that person can go to that city of refuge and the redeemer can't come get them so that's one kind of redeemer is is that's a sort of kinsman redeemer there's a second kinsman redeemer you see that played out in in the book of ruth that's what boaz does Boaz redeems Ruth, whose husband was of his tribe, or a clan even, uh, which is a smaller subset of tribe. So Boaz marries Ruth, but before he can marry Ruth, he, he he will inherit, when he marries her, he will get what would be due to Ruth through her husband, who is dead. And so So he has to say, wait, I have to do this, though. I can't marry you today. I've got to go. There's another one who is a closer kinsman than I am, and he has right of first redemption. hear that? Redemption. So he he has right of first redemption. i got to go to him. So he goes to the guy, and and then he poses, lays it all out before him, and the guy says, I can't do that. He says, okay, did everybody hear you? Everybody heard that, right? Okay, take off your sandal. That's the way of saying, I'm not going to redeem her. So he takes off his sandal, Boaz says, okay, I got this, and he goes and marries Ruth. That's a redeemer. He redeemed Ruth. He redeemed that property so that it stayed within the family. He had an obligation to do it, but, he didn't, it, but it wasn't a responsibility. He could. He could pass on it as well. There's a certain amount of um, stigma that attaches to somebody who decides not to do it when it's their responsibility to do it. And so Boaz willingly does that. That's a redeemer. He has, he has taken Ruth from one status, which is widow, and now he's made her first a wife and then a mother. So he, he changed her status is what happened, and that's what a Redeemer does. And so that's exactly what what Job is looking for. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. So he lives, but he's not here. And at the last, at the end times, he'll stand on the earth. After I've already died and all that kind of stuff, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He's affirming his belief in resurrection. And what he's saying is, I want my, my complaint here preserved until that time, because I know at the end there should be a reckoning for this. I should be told at the end because I don't seem to be getting any satisfaction or or justice now there there will come a time he says and I know that when there will be and, and I just want, I wish there was some way to record what I'm saying so that it could then be brought out in the end and dealt with and, and so he's looking towards the old one, he says, I shall see God in my flesh, even though my skin has been thus destroyed because he's died. Yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. So he's counting on resurrection. He believes in resurrection and he believes in justice, ultimately, that justice will be done and that there is one who is called Redeemer, who will change his status from what it is at that moment which is this this poor pathetic figure and it'll change him into something correct who he was who he he really is will be again revealed well little does job know he's not going to have to wait that long for that to happen god's going to come he's going to have his audience with god and then god's going to change his status again and he's going to make him even wealthier than he was before and he's going to give him children to replace those that he lost i mean that's not Exactly right. You can't replace a child that you lost. But but you see what I'm saying? He's not going to be childless anymore. He's not going to be poor anymore. He's not going to be, you know, sick and all that kind of stuff anymore. So his status will be changed by the Redeemer. But who is his redeemer? Ultimately, it's God. Who is our Redeemer? Well, it's Jesus. Simple as that. Jesus redeemed us, but he already redeemed us two thousand years ago. He redeemed us at the cross with the price of his blood, his sacrifice on the cross, once offered, then makes it possible for us to be redeemed, and we've already been changed in our status. We were dead in our trespasses, exactly what Paul says and exactly what Paul means. I wasn't dying in my trespasses. I was dead. I was dead to God. I was separated from him completely. I was an enemy of the cross of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit came and changed my status through the blood of Jesus on the cross, because that's only pleading I have is Jesus's blood. And his sacrifice, so that in that way, that's how Jesus is our redeemer. He changes our status from those who who, who were dead. You know, we were we were not only you know merely dead; we were really most sincerely dead, as they say in the Wizard of Oz. But but we were dead in this life because we were dead to the source of life, which is the Holy Spirit. But our sins and our, and our denial of Christ then put makes us a status is is dead and that's it's not just dead in this life it's dead eternally we don't we don't have the breath of life in us which is the holy spirit then he gives us the holy spirit and our status is changed from dead to living and we live through the power of the holy spirit who is our life Christ is our life, and when He appears, we will be changed into His likeness. We will have a, an even different status at that point, point. and Jesus is going to talk about that status right here in the lesson today, which is Luke twenty twenty seven to thirty eight. They came to it, then came to Him some Sadducees uh, who deny the resurrection, and they asked Him a question. Okay, let me let me give you a little quick heads up as quick as I can on on the Sadducees. So the Sadducees typically were very wealthy people that they. they their deal was, their beliefs were, as it's told right there, they deny the resurrection. They don't just deny the resurrection. They deny any kind of heavenly thing at all. There's no such thing as angels. There's, there's none of that. The, the Holy Spirit, nah, what, what, I don't know what that is. Um, but but they, they deny all those spiritual things. They, they only see present reality. They, they're completely based in what they can see, touch, taste, and feel. They're materialists. But they believe in the law of Moses in the same kind of way that, this, that the uh, Samaritans believed in the law of Moses. But, but the Samaritans believed in, in eternal life through, through that. They just believe in the law of Moses. And, and what they believe that, that about it is, is that if I keep—they believe the same thing Job does. If I keep the laws, God will prosper me in this life. And, and that way there will be a legacy that passes down through the generations. But so that they, they cared about the law— It mattered, but it mattered in the wrong way. (laughs) It it was a means to an end, period, end of sentence. That was it. What did they really want? They wanted prosperity. How did they, they found, they thought they found the way to get there was to keep the law. Well, it kind of worked, frankly. They they did well. They, They and the Pharisees didn't have very much in common. They both had a value for the law, but they saw it from different perspectives, they saw it from totally different perspectives. And so the, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any of those heavenly beings. They believed in God, but they were really deists. God didn't have a personal relationship with them. He didn't care about them. What he cared about was the law and the people who kept the law. And if you kept the law, you were righteous, period, end of sentence. You didn't have to love God. You didn't have to care about God. You just kept the law. And if you did that, he was obligated to bless you. So that, that's the way they saw things. So they come and they ask Jesus' question, and it's ridiculous because here it is. We're going to talk about that idea of the kinsman-redeemer like Boaz that I told you about a minute ago. And that's called yibam in, in Hebrew. It's called yibam. And what that means is it, it, the law would say that, that if a man died, he, if he were married and he died and he didn't have any offspring, then, then it was an obligation of, the bro- of one of his brothers, the, the next closest one, to marry that woman and to have children with her. And, and that, that it, let's say there were two brothers, or let's say there's three, whatever the number is, doesn't matter. So there are three pieces of inheritance. If there are three total brothers, ultimately the, the three of them will inherit what their father leaves them. Right. So and and that is not just from their father, that that is from the beginning of the possession of the land when the land was allotted. So it's an eternal possession so long as they still maintain the land. So there would be a division into thirds. Well, when one brother dies, potentially that's that's going to only make it two. You know, so so what they do is they want to preserve the memory of the dead brother. They want to preserve his legacy and his inheritance. So the, if he marries that woman, the first child actually is considered to be the brother's child, the dead brother, and then and from there, then the the next child is his child. So if he was going to inherit, uh, it went from uh, you know a third to a half. And then he would have passed on that to his own children, but now, but he has a responsibility under the law to marry that woman and preserve the dead brother's inheritance. So that child would inherit what his what his father would have inherited. And so, in some cases, people were not willing to do that because, well, they didn't want to dilute their own children's inheritance by doing that. And so that's what Yba marriage is is that responsibility of the the surviving brother. To marry that child, and you see that in the story of Judah and Tamar. When Judah's son, who is married to Tamar, dies, then then he gives her his another child, uh, Onan, and Onan refuses to impregnate Tamar, and, and so then he gets pushed aside then he promises him another one blah blah blah. anyway that that's the situation that's going to be asked about here teacher moses wrote for us that if a man's brother died having a wife but no children the man must take the widow the brother must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother now there were seven brothers the first took a wife and died without children second and the third took her likewise all seven left no children and died afterward the woman also died in the resurrection they're not worried about inheritance anymore by the way therefore whose wife will the woman be for the seven had her as a wife. I think most people would have been thinking, "Well, we're talking about inheritance here, but they're going to ask a question about in the resurrection, which they don't even believe in. And their point is, this is all silly anyway, right? That's that's exactly what they're trying to say. This is how silly the idea of resurrection is, is their point. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be in the resurrection? <laughs> For the seven had her as his wife. And I like to picture these guys showing up before the throne, right? At the time of judgment. And and walking up and and seeing Jesus sitting there and thinking, oh, this is not going to go well for us. Remember that day when we asked that ridiculous question. I mean, here we are resurrected, which we didn't believe in and didn't expect. And and who are we? Who is going to be our judge? The dude we asked that silly question to. I feel like an idiot, right? So so Jesus says to them, the sons of this age. And immediately, you know, well, he's going to be talking about another age. (laughs) The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. He says that, that that's what happens here, right? They're given, they're married and given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection of the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, what he's saying is, he says, your idiot, idiotic idea here is, is that this age is an analog for the next age. Mm-mm, no, it's preparation for the next age. It's the time when, when the weeding out occurs, essentially. So those who um, are considered worthy to attain to that age in the resurrection of the dead, they don't. it's not like that in that age, he says. It's not the same thing. So that's your problem. As you're so focused on this world you're so focused on materialism and i mean materialism in the sense not just in the sense of, of, of going after wealth no i mean materialism is the idea that that the only things that are real are the things that i can see smell touch taste you know my five senses the things that are, that are accessible to my senses are the only things that are quote real so that's materialism and, and that's what he's saying is is that you you are such materialists that, that you can't imagine something different. You know. So they lacked imagination. They lacked um, sanctified imagination. They lacked an understanding completely of the truth. He says they can't do these things because they can't die anymore. So it's a totally different thing. If you can't die, then, then the whole issue of marriage is not important, and, and it's not a matter of reproduction any longer. They, these are totally different relationships, in the resurrection age they can't die anymore and, and th- listen to this because they're equal to angels and are sons of god being sons of the resurrection you know in hebrews it, it's it talks about being made for a time little lower than the angels and, and then it's also said that we will judge angels jesus says that so w- w- what what is all this language about what do we mean so that they, they can't die anymore he says you you misunderstand the resurrection you misunderstand that completely. And because you misunderstand it, you deny it. You, you can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, all that. So you just pretend that it doesn't exist. Well, bully for you, I'm telling you it does exist. And, and this is not a perfect analog for that. And, and then he goes on beyond that, beyond the idea of your denial of resurrection to they're equal to angels. So he affirms angels. And he says, and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection so he's talked about sons of this age in the beginning now he's speaking about equal to angels sons and our sons of god sons of the resurrection it changes our status our status changes from sons of this age to sons of god there's only one context throughout all of scripture for sons of god angels period those are heavenly beings that's what sons of God is. If you look through the entire Old Testament, you will see that phrase only being used for angels. So we are changed. We're we're not angels. He doesn't say that. He says they are equal to angels. There's some sort of correspondence there, but but, but he doesn't say they're the same as angels. They're equal to angels, and angels don't reproduce among one another. We got to go back to Genesis 6, which I'm not going to do today, but I am going to do on the daily podcast between the 13th and, uh, of December and, the, and, and Christmas. I'll talk about that because sons of God see daughters of men and find them attractive and they come and marry them and they reproduce with them. And that's where we get these things called the Nephilim, the mighty men of old. We ain't got time to do that today. But anyway, so he says, they're equal to angels. They're sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And we know that our resurrection bodies are like these bodies, but they're not these bodies. They're perfected in a certain kind of way, but there's not procreation in the resurrection age. He said, but the dead are raised. You know, look, I just told you the truth, right? I just, it's not my opinion, on these things, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you about the resurrection, I'm telling you about angels, and I'm telling you about the actual change in status and being, your ontology will change. The ground of being, what you are, will be changed as well when you become sons of God and sons of the resurrection. Right now, you're sons of this age, that will all be changed in the resurrection. He said, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. It's not my opinion, he says. It's, it's in the law of Moses that you say you keep. Well, you, maybe you focus so much on the law that you forgot about the other truths that are there, is his, his implication. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And so when Jesus says that, he says, Moses knew this. Moses didn't say that the Lord is the God, was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he is the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. All live to him. So they can't die anymore, but they are alive. They have died, but they are alive. And so Jesus makes a very simple point there, and he just blows them completely up. Now, whether they got that, understood that or not, I have no idea. But at the end of it, what we're told is no one dared ask him any more questions. They do ask questions, but but Luke tells us they don't, That, that, that they were cowed. By Jesus's answer. In, in the um, epistle today, it's 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 5, skip forward to 13 to 17. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, he, Paul has to spend more time talking about eschatology, which is the study of end times, to, to the Thessalonians than he does to anybody. Apparently there was, there was a lot of debate and misunderstanding there. Remember I told you last week that this is largely a Jewish community, that, that it, it historically has been and was until the time of the Nazis. It's, it's historically a majority Jewish place. So when he's speaking here, he's speaking to a community that, that seems to have misunderstood some things, and they have what, what's known as an overrealized eschatology that the end times have already come. And so we can get into that stuff in certain kinds of understanding of eschatology in the church now with, with the idea that there's, there's going to be this millennial reign of Christ, and then some people will say, well, we're already in the millennial reign of Christ, and the proof of that is the church. And so that's an overrealized eschatology, it, it, is that is—that's that, not true. <laughs> we're not in that period of time. That's to come. And so that, that's the problem in Thessalonica is they have an overrealized eschatology they they don't see these things that are still to come they believe some of those things have already happened and so they're waiting for these other things to happen in in the immediate future in spite of the and their mistake is they have assumed that things have already happened that they expect to happen but Paul's point here is to say they haven't He says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Paul's concerned here about what? Disinformation. (laughs) Right? So he's concerned. It's a big point today, right? Is that Everybody's concerned about disinformation, you know, and every side is concerned that other side's stuff is disinformation. Um, So we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either— by a spirit or a spoken word. So if somebody comes to you and pretends to speak in the spirit, that, that they know these things, and that would be Gnosticism. That is, I have a secret knowledge that's unavailable to you, but, but I'm going to impart that to you. Or a spoken word, somebody saying, hey, it's already happened. Jesus says, there are going to be people who are going to come to you, and they're going to say, look, he's here, look, he's there, I've already seen him. He says, don't be worried about that. Jesus tells the disciples not to be worried about that. It'll be plain when I appear, you won't have to get it secondhand, and that's exactly what Paul said. Or a letter seeming to be from us, and that could be taken in one of two ways. So in First Thessalonians, Paul has some things to say about end times, and they they seem to have misinterpreted that. But it could also equally be somebody who's sending something purporting to be from Paul. Timothy and Silvanus, which is who he addresses the Thessalonians from, the three of them. He says, don't be alarmed by those things to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day won't come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That would be what we popularly know from 1 John, 2 John, and, um, and the Revelation as the Antichrist. It's the same person that Paul's speaking about here. It's, it's a man who, who will deny the law and the force of the law. It, it, it's going to be a law unto himself. That, that's what it means. It, it's one who is going to claim to be Messiah and Redeemer, but who is not. And you will know by his proclamation and by his either fidelity to the Word of God or his infidelity to the Word of God to tell you that none of that stuff actually matters. Or it's going to be one who comes and and just says, from a non-religious perspective, none of that matters. I'm God. It's going to be a claim to being God. Jesus didn't do that. (laughs) He he came and taught the Word and taught God's people, and, and he claimed to be the Son of God. And so the man of lawlessness will revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, I, I'm the real thing here. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that I was still with you? I told you these things. Don't, I mean, I, this is not new, is what he's saying. And it, this has been understood in many ages to be, okay, was this um, uh, Epiphanes, Aristarchus Epiphanes who sets himself up kind of as God? Is it is it other emperors like Nero who set themselves up as God? And the answer to that, Paul says, is no. No. It has not already happened. This is going to be plain, he says. It's going to be really clear. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, an object of worship, so that he takes his t- seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He says it's going to be that simple, be that straightforward. You, you ain't going to miss it. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So he moves from there from, hey, you know, had to deal with this, but I'm thankful for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And what he's saying there is, is that... Not that you were the first people to be saved, because certainly other people were, but what he's saying is, is that we collectively are the first fruits because we're the people right after the resurrection of Jesus. And so there will be many more generations to come is what Paul's trying to say, that, that, that we're the first fruits, but we're not the last fruits, you know, don't get that wrong. And then he goes through how we saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. So it's a change in life, sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the glory, which is what Jesus exactly said there about the sons of the resurrection, those who will be equal with angels and sons of God. He says, so then, because of all that, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So the traditions you were taught by us. So tradition is actually important, that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. So either one of those is perfectly valid, Paul says. The reason I pointed back to those 39 articles of religion in the Anglican prayer book is exactly that. Because what it says is we're staking out a claim to not be a new thing. We are aligning ourselves with what we believe the church has always believed, and that is the tradition that's truly important. So to the extent that the man of lawlessness comes, the man of lawlessness will lead away from the truths of the tradition. That's important. We need to know that and stand in that and never be taken away by somebody who says, well, that's always been true, but it's no longer true. Well, bye is my only answer to you when you start that nonsense because that's what paul says stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter and that's not saying keep these festivals no it's saying believe the stuff the church believes believe these things stand firm in these and hold fast to the traditions believe in the truth Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And that's my prayer for you this week, um, that you stand firm in the knowledge that your Redeemer lives, and at the end, he will stand on the earth, and in your eyes, you will see God, and you will be changed. Your status will be changed because of that Redeemer, not because of your good works, not because that you deserve it or earned it. No, because of Jesus, your status will be changed. And you'll go from sons of this age, daughters of this age, to sons and daughters of the resurrection, sons and daughters of the living God.